This is Paul Siegel. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live at 1 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and youtube.com slash wanderingdms slash live. And now, on with the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan. Today on Wandering DMs, we're going to be talking about the death of the DM. You know, a good DM is hard to find, and there's been a lot of attempts at removing the DM from Dungeons & Dragons play over the years. We're going to talk about those attempts and which ones have been successful, if any, which ones are your favorites. Feel free to put in the live chat today. Uh, all that and more today on Wandering DMs. And I think uh, viewers cannot help but notice that you have wandered someplace unusual. Uh, why don't you tell us where you're at? Uh, good question, Paul. Yeah, so I actually am wandering today uh, in uh, sunny and slightly windy Philadelphia. This is actually the uh, Philadelphia Museum of Art uh, that's behind us. Got the, got the famous statue of Rocky kind of off to my left that there's a large uh, crowd of people uh, taking photos at. Uh, I'm actually in Philadelphia today for the Black Star Film Festival that's happening later today. So. Uh, a lot of stuff, and glad that, glad that I'm here uh, today with uh, with uh, disinvited artist Isabel Garbani, who is who's starring in said film at the Black Star Film Festival. Just in case that's awesome. a mystery to anybody. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, so glad you're able to uh, join us. Um, so, uh, folks listening to the podcast, well, you know, hear the occasional high tech here on Wandering DMs. So, I thought we could probably. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, great. So I'm uh, preparing myself for the, uh, you know, catastrophic uh, loss of connectivity from Dan. Um, but uh, I'm going to, we're going to push on and uh, talk a little bit about Death of the DM. So this was, this was actually my idea. So I want to give a little background here about why, uh, why this topic came up. Um, folks who have been on our channel for a while may or may not realize that there's one video on our YouTube that is like above and beyond way more views than anything we've ever done. And it is a little four-minute bit uh, by me uh, about can I play D&D alone? And it just talks a little bit, just gives a little bit of background info about solo D&D and uh, how long that's existed and what, what options exist today for solo D&D. Uh, other old-school friends will know, of course, that there are uh, solo D&D modules that came out in, you know, as early as like the mid-'80s, I think. Uh, one solo came out, and uh, and of course we've had lots of and and we'll talk about this. We'll talk about all the, the, the various uh, solo things. There's even a playlist on our channel here of Dan and I playing some of those solo modules together, uh, which maybe sounds weird, but the basically we kind of shared uh, shared control of the solo character, and uh, yeah, you can check that out. So so this is an offshoot of that, and the question is like. You know why? Why do those things exist? And can you play D and D without a DM? And uh, uh, all the things that we've tried, and whether it's ever going to work or not. Totally, totally. Dan, what and, do you think? Um, high, high level. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, uh, yeah. Um, you know, I enjoyed our, uh, our our solo. You know, our exploration of those uh, you know solo modules. And of course, that was right when the uh, the quarantine was happening in 2020. So we didn't have we didn't have any way of playing other than that right then. 
so that was a good yeah. time and i think we've gotten uh, actually some good feedback of you know some people did not know that solo dnd modules were like a common thing at one point um yeah. so i think that was a good thing to explore um our, our appreciation you know, thing, to members of the members of the chat who are indicating that they hit refresh on that video thousands of times for us thank, thank you thanks <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a surprise. It was a surprise, honestly, to us that that video took off like it did. Um, but it's a fascinating topic, honestly, and one I have a lot of thoughts on. So uh, I think it deserves a little more than four minutes. Yeah, um, obviously, there's a great need because we, we, we get a lot of feedback on that particular video and followed did a great job with it. Uh, you know, can I play D&D &D solo? And we, you know, constantly get, frankly, uh, hundreds of views and people saying they're really thankful for finding it, particularly in the last year or two when people really need some way of, uh, you know, scratching that itch when they've, uh, you know, when they're a little bit isolated or they're in, a, you know, I grew up in a very rural uh, state myself and, and grew up in a place where it was hard to find players. So I think that that video that Paul made has been very helpful to people in the last, in the last year or two. I'm really glad that, uh, that that's out there. It's it's a it's a fascinating concept because um, you know the other the other counterpoint I want to give to this is that I've been reading uh, uh, friends of the show uh, John Peterson's uh, book the uh, the, oh, elusive Dan, shift the title the elusive shift thank you wow why did the title of that book just vanish from my head um, it's elusive it's yeah, really funny the elusive, elusive. Shift, for some reason elusive title the elusive shift eluded me. Uh, I was just laying on the beach yesterday reading it, in fact. Um, and I'm kicking myself for not having it sitting here on my desk next to me. Anyway, point being, that book kind of talks a little bit about the, um, you know, or, or a portion or a part of that book is about this change from wargaming to what we now call roleplay, right? And like, what is that element? Like, why did it happen? Why did the game change in that way? Uh, what is that thing that makes a game a role-playing game and not uh, a war game? And uh, frankly, I think that's that's kind of intrinsically tied to the notion of the dungeon master, which is not to say war games didn't have a role like that, right? There was referees, they adjudicated rules and whatnot. But I would say there's also a very distinctive creative element that the dungeon master brings to the game that um, people are tr have tried many times to... Um, find a way around or remove or distribute amongst the players. And it's it's uh, tricky, very tricky. Yeah. Um, yes. I can... Yes. Sorry, course, uh, uh, shout out to I... Bobo Ogre, who's pointed out um, uh, the, the, the same fears as all of the rest of the crew here on Wandering DMs, that uh, Dan's going to be all red and peely at next week's show. Uh, <laughs> yeah, please take care of yourself. <laughs> I, I I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you all the uh, wandering DMs helpers. <laughs> yes. Um. Cool. All right. Uh, let me let me dive okay. into. Sorry, Dan. You have thoughts. You want to share? I'm cutting you off. I mean, let cool. me let me say. So the first thing that comes to mind is you know people say that with the uh, with the Blackboard Munch, uh, when Dave Arneson started running what we'd now call role playing games, there was such an intense desire, such an intense need. You know, we hear about Gygax running games every single night round the week when it first started, and we hear about Arneson having a huge crew and really a hunger for more gaming than he could provide, right? And uh, at that point, there was only two DMs. Um, you know, it's still hard to find a really good DM. And so people were 
you know, filling their basements and people were calling Dave Arneson on the phone after hours and saying, could I do some kind of adventure um, uh, just by the phone? And uh, uh, so we know that that's sort of the motivation for the dungeon game. Um, uh, the, you know, sort of the first attempt of can we turn this experience of exploring a dungeon into a board game and play that without a DM. And I played a lot of dungeon myself. It's a great game. Um, and then all these other yeah. attempts have just been a water flow in the same direction. Yeah, I've I've, awesome. I've I've played plenty of dungeon myself as well. Here we here I got got an image of it for you uh, of it on the screen there. Uh, and we know this for a fact because Dave McGarry has told us this in person at Maricon uh, uh, that the the impetus for making this game right was was how do I I want to play more D and D but I can't get enough of Arneson's time so how do I play it without Dave Arneson? Um, and without someone who fills that role, right? Not, not. I mean, maybe they blurred that line a little bit between whether or not the magic came from Dave Arneson personally or just someone fulfilling the dungeon master role. But uh, yeah, I played a lot of dungeon. What do you think, Dan? Does dungeon succeed? Does it? Does it allow you to play D and D without a dungeon master? It's fun, but it's not the same experience. I think we would all agree with that. Um, I've played. I, I've played a lot of dungeon and. And it's a game that's easy to get, uh, you know, casual gamers into it. They recognize it as a board game, right? Um, yep. And it's a, it's a cool experience, but uh, you know, there's a whole lot that's gotten shaved off from D and D. You don't really have the mysteries. I mean, you can you can just, you can see the map just for starters. Uh, there's no question about where what the layout's like. There's no leveling up. There's no advancement. You're not working as a party. You're not actually working as a team with other people. It's totally, uh, you know, independent, competitive play on the same game board. So it's fun, but it, I mean, it's it's about fifteen percent of the real D and D experience. I would I would take a stab at it. Now, now interestingly, I will say that I and there are many, and I have played many other games that have come since that do something similar, where they say we're going to do a dungeon crawl, a team-based dungeon crawl game uh, that has no dungeon master. Uh, and I'm thinking of games here like Warhammer Quest or uh, Descent. Um, plenty of those games that try to add that, you know, add a lot of the things Dan just said are missing back in, right? They're, they're co-op games, there's leveling up, uh, there's team tactics, et cetera, et cetera. I think they still don't quite get there. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll point this out. Here's a in really interesting uh, juxtaposition, I think, between Hero Quest and Warhammer Quest. So folks have ever played those two games, both by, you know, uh, jointly made by Milton Bradley and um, um, and Games Workshop. Although actually I think Hero, I think by the time they got to Warhammer Quest, Milton Bradley wasn't in the mix anymore. But point being, in Hero Quest, it's a board game where you're doing a dungeon crawl and there is a dungeon master role. By the time we get to Warhammer Quest, they've gotten rid of that role. I, I don't know, Dan, have you played either or both of those games? I've played a little bit of Warhammer Quest, I think, once. Not nearly as much as you have. I have not explored that as much as I wanted to. Okay, we should um, we should sit down sometime, play some Hero Quest, because that that game is a game that's near and dear to my heart. I played a lot of that as a kid, and and it kind of plays a lot like a standard D and D game, right? Where still there's still you're on a board and you're moving. You have a team of four characters that are moving around, but there is a DM who has a booklet of what's in the dungeon, right? The, the secret info of what's in the dungeon is in the hands of a DM player. 
Oh, really? And okay. so, yeah, yeah. And, and, and there's some, that somehow adds some of that magic back, I think. It, like, somehow you feel like that person, even though I don't think they get to really make very many, if any, creative choices, there's still, like, this idea that there's secret information and control of another player and the, uh, the permission, perhaps, to add a little character play in there, right? There's definitely moments where villains or NPCs are supposed to speak and the DM player can absolutely, you know, do a funny voice and... Um, <laughs> yes, yes, uh, Disparal VV points out, the best thing about HeroQuest is the gargoyle. Um, there's a lot of best things about HeroQuest, of course. Um, <laughs> anyway... It still ultimately is removing a little bit, though, right? It is, I would say it's closer. It's maybe, you know, 80% instead of 60% close to D&D, but it's still, you've lost a little bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Interesting. I want to talk about, so... We should play that live sometime. Yeah, we should definitely do that. That'll be an interesting counterpoint. But let's jump onto a game, Dan, that you and I have played together, uh, which is a solo board game called Barbarian Prince. Uh, now, here is a game where you have uh, a board, kind of a wilderness board. You're moving your character around. Uh, you're trying to achieve a specific goal, which is gather enough treasure to uh, reclaim your lost kingdom. Um, and then the content is a lot of, like, random tables, but also, like, pre-scripted stuff. Almost plays a bit like a choose-your-own-adventure book. Um, so there's a feeling there of choice, right? Of, like, you know, how... Who have I encountered? That was randomly generated. How do I react to them? And and we're basically we're replacing the DM at this point with random tables and um, rewritten pieces of story. Um, what what uh, modern computer gaming design would call storylets. Um, what do you think, Dan? You've, we've played this one together. I like it, you know, so I first encountered Barbarian Prince in, uh, you know, TSR's Dragon Magazine. There was a, there was kind of a glowing review of it at one point. And so before I got a chance to, to play it with you, I was uh, intrigued with it for years. I like it. Uh, I like the fact that I think the thing that most resembles classic D&D is it's almost unwinnable. It's, it's, yeah. so, it's murderously hard, right? You're almost really, totally guaranteed really right? Yep. It takes no prisoners. Yep. And that itself is the most D&D &D part of it. Of Here's a game that's almost entirely unwinnable, which is not the kind of games that get made anymore nowadays, mostly. Um, so I kind of really respect that. And I actually feel that it being, you know, a solo game with one character, like if I play Dungeon, I'm a little bit more struck by, you know, there's a bunch of players, but we're not a team like we normally are. With mm -hmm. this, uh, you know, it feels like a very legitimate callback to uh, Robert Howard's Conan. Um, mm -hmm. And for some reason, it, it kind of avoids my loss of team party play by being focused on this one lost character story. So I think it's uh, I think it's highly enjoyable, and I actually like it. And, of course, it inspired you to make uh, your own video game at one point based on it, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. And, and it's... Um... You know, it is it is ultimately designed to be played solo, right? You and I are kind of twisting it a little bit by playing it together, um, which we've done with other yep. games. Um, I, I honestly think that these games are better played that way, uh, which is also interesting, right? Like, because uh, we can compare this, say, to some of the, the 
kind of story adventure books that came out, uh, like I'm showing here, Steve Jackson's Sorcery. Uh, our friends in the UK will, of course, point out the fighting fantasy books. Um, these are purely solo, right? This is like basically a choose-your-own-adventure book, but with, you know, some dice rolling and mechanics sp spilled in there as well. Uh, maybe some leveling, maybe. Maybe you have a character that, that can change over the course of, of play. Um, and this is, this is not terribly different, frankly, from Barbarian Prince. I think Barbarian Prince makes, you know, by adding a board and, and breaking things up more, it feels a little more gamey than these do. Um, but um, I don't know. I feel like there is still an element here that's missing because there's this feeling of like, well, all the outcomes have been pre-scripted, right? There is no option in these games to go completely left turn, surprise, we're doing a thing that none of us expected to happen, right? And I feel like that's the one, I think that's an important piece of the magic for me. Like that, that's, that's gonna be missing from these. Absolutely, absolutely, I agree. You know, I suppose we should talk just a little bit, I mean, because you've already mentioned it twice, we should talk about the Choose Your Own Adventure books that came up right in the 80s, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting because I was on, I think I was on Stack Exchange writing in the last week, and someone was asking this question, is there any conceivable way that we could take, like, the branching story structure of a video game and somehow put it in, like, a book form? May I guess that's impossible. But I don't see any way you could possibly have a branching story in a book. And, you know, someone who's clearly the younger than you or I are, and someone had to say, no, there was an entire line of books called Choose Your Own Adventure Books in the 80s, 90s that did exactly that. So you should go, right. you should go look at that. Now, obviously, Choose Your Own Adventures, they don't have mechanics, they don't have leveling, but they do have a story where you get to take part by making, mm -hmm. you know, conscious decisions in the role of the character and having that form the story that you're going to see. So... That itself, I mean, it's not an accident those things came up at the same era when D&D &D was, was popular of how can we interact with these stories and make, and, and let us get an opportunity to, to, uh, to take control of, of what's happening in them. So that itself scratched a little bit of an itch for a lot of us back in the 80s. Yeah. True, true. Now, I will say one of the things I found most interesting about those books is some of the analysis, some of the data analysis that's been done since then is if you look at how those books evolved over time, the early books had a lot more variation and a lot more different endings that could result. Whereas as they progressed, they became more linear, right? They, they moved away from this wide branching structure and towards linearity. Linear, I don't know if that's a word. Anyway, why the heck did that happen? That seems backwards. Well, that's an interesting one. I, I, I think because they're easier to produce. Right. I, like yeah. I look at the early, um, you know, choose your own adventures. And of course, TSR had its own branded line. Uh, now it's the, the, the name of it's escaping me. What was the name of the TSR brand? Um, uh, Endless Quest, right? Endless um, Quest. Thank you. Yep. yep there it is. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So one time in my blog, I uh, analyzed the first couple of Endless Quest books, and I was struck by how incredibly complicated the first one was and how you know much uh, less complicated later ones got and i'm personally like amazed at the work that must have gone in the first one i think that it must be an enormous amount of labor to get all these branches and they actually reconnect like sometimes they branch off and then reconnect and i would think that would have 
have to be an enormous amount of labor, and it was probably just easier and faster for, to produce them with fewer branches. Yeah, that is that is a very good point, and I'm sure a problem that comes up with plenty of products where you put so much effort into the initial release, it comes out, it does well. There's demand for more, and you go, I don't, I can't put as much effort in, yeah. and, and keep up with this demand. I must find a way to cut corners and produce faster. Uh, that is fascinating. And it's a classic problem of the, 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 the commercial end, you know, getting involved with your hobby and then redirecting it, you know, in a, in a direction that's different from what where the joy was in the first place. Great. Great. Let's, uh, let's diverge a little bit here now and talk about other other attempts. So, okay, how else can we get rid of the, of the DM apart from just, like, writing out text? Um Another big thing coming up in that same time period is, of course, uh, computers, personal computers. And so we end up with games like Pool of Radiance, which uh, viewers may realize, uh, recognize Dan's been playing for, uh, for uh, a few weeks now. Uh, Thursday nights, I believe. Thursday nights, those come out. Uh, late night, Thursday, um, Eastern time at 11, yeah. Right. Now, the interesting thing about the addition, I think, of a computer to this situation is that and ultimately, I believe in that the design space is the same here. That the design space of a game like Pool of Radiance versus, say, something like Barbarian Prince is very similar. It's just all the pain of uh, keeping information secret, uh, doing various referencing, right? Like, uh, there's a lot of these games end up with, like, roll on this chart, now look up this entry, now pick this option, now roll on this other chart, right? The computer makes a lot of that easier. Um, but still, you can't get away from this mental design space of all outcomes have been frequency. Agreed. What do you think? Agreed, yeah. yeah. And, and, and just like, you know, the inspiration for some of the, the, inspiration for some of the very earliest uh, computer games was totally Dungeons and Dragons, right? So the earliest, mm -hmm. you know, computer games people, people were making on mainframes when that's what they had available were called Dungeon or Quest or you know, something like that. Like I played a lot of, you know, I played through the Zork series at one point, um, which is great. So to a large, I mean, and again, our friend John Peterson will say to a large extent, the entire computer game industry that gave me and Paul careers at one point um, really is entirely rooted in Dungeons and Dragons. That, you know, wanting this experience, wanting to participate was exactly what was on the mind of a lot of the people who made those computer games. And at least in my uh, case, uh, I've said for a long time that computer games are to movies as tabletop role-playing is to theater. Uh, the tabletop experience is it's more live, it's more immediate, it's one of a kind, you're never going to see this play happen exactly again. But the computer games have turned into an industry that's easy to package, easy to sell, easy to you know have an industry built on. But for everybody, when I was in computer games, anybody that I knew was really thinking about tabletop Dungeons & Dragons for the work that we were doing. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's true. I mean, and 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 I feel like the, the computer game industry has tried to solve these over and over and over again, right? Like I look, um, I remember uh, uh, was this when you and I were working together? I can't remember. Anyway, you eventually see games uh, massively multiplayer online games like World of Warcraft, right? Actually, it wasn't World of Warcraft; it was one of its predecessors that I think came out while we were working together. Um, his name I'm not going to remember now, but regardless. Right, these games are clearly rooted in D&D, &D, 
right? This is, this is, you know, I want an open world that's more simulationist and everybody can log in and play together and story will emerge, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's great fun, great fun. Um, what do you think? Has it, has it, did it succeed, Dan? Did, did, did MMOs kill the DM? <laughs> Not successfully, I don't think. Not successfully. Uh, and you know, uh, at, you know, at one point, uh, I was uh, second choice for the Dungeons and Dragons online uh, game uh, maintenance team. At one point, uh, Isabel uh, worked at the place where they were making Asheron's Call, um, and I remember um, Isabel. So Isabel had a free account to Asheron's Call. Right, and so we logged in one night, and we played for about 15 minutes. And you know, it's funny because I'm we're playing online, but I'm doing the voices, right? I'm still I'm at my computer, and I'm still doing the 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 accent that I picked for my character. And then 15 minutes later, I was like, I have to get off this because I'm going to get addicted and never do anything else. And I'm just like, I I have to stay away from MMOs actually. And I think that was probably the right choice for me at least. Um, so an interesting experience, but again. Uh, not exactly the same. Among the things that mentally bother me with MMOs is that the world is almost over full with heroes, right? Is yeah. your hero isn't really that special because you know there's a hundred thousand people out there at the same level going through the same dungeons kind of repeatedly. Um, and it's a little bit hard for me to... I think that's something that MMOs always struggled with is, you know, there's, there's a lot of people to interact with. But because of that, your character isn't really so special anymore. And it really turns into this um, commoditized, right? It really turns into this commodity situation of really the interesting thing is really just all the trade that's happening. Um, would be my thousand mile overview of what I see for MMOs. I wanna, I wanna touch on, I wanna go back and touch on one thing you mentioned there, which was, which was sitting at an MMO and doing the voices. So one of the one of the interesting things that, um, that Peterson touches on in his book is how this evolution towards role play um, may not have been the intent of the designers of the game. That that it, it perhaps came up more from the players. That it was perhaps invented and brought to the table by the players more so than the designers. Um, that it just happened because if you look at the early rule books for D&D, there's not really any mention of this, right? There's not not a lot of text is given to this idea that we're supposed to do this character play, but it happens. And and I and I remember it happening in World of Warcraft, frankly. I, it, like, the players brought the same energy to World of Warcraft, right? You started to see servers that were intentionally, um, they started to sort of qualify servers or put tags on servers to say, well, this server is PVP or not PVP, but also this is an RP server. Where we expect, if you're in the chat, for you to be playing your character, and that's got nothing to do with the game, right? That's got nothing to do with yeah. anything in the game. It's just behaviorally, we expect when you're in the chat for you to speak in the voice of your character. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's funny because in the you know in the in the stuff that Gygax was writing at one point, he really went out of his way. I mean, obviously, the play that we see today, particularly in like streaming shows, is very different uh, than I think what was expected in the early days. And uh, we see writings from Gygax where he really went out of his way to uh, cast shade 
on people that actually were playing in characters. I think he called it amateur theatrics a lot. So, <laughs> and you know, and I think about right in in original first edition. One thing that really pops out at me is the charisma stat was very very important for the reason that it established how many hirelings you were controlling, right? And there was this clearly baked in rule that you weren't controlling one person. You were probably controlling four or five or maybe seven. Um, and if you try to do that, you're clearly not in character, right? Uh, you're not in one person's mind if you do that. So I agree that the, the early game was clearly on the way from wargaming of controlling a thousand people to you're controlling ten people, and they hadn't quite landed at the point of you're inhabiting the mind of one person yet. It's, it's, it's fascinating, I think, to think of this element that we all love about this game being kind of uh, created by groupthink, right? This sort of created by, you know, brought to the table and pushed on. Uh, I don't know. I guess I, I encounter this a lot, frankly, in um, the kind of online games I develop these days. Back in the day, Dan, when you and I were making video games together, there was this idea of the gold master, right? You would work and work and work on a game, you press it to CD, that was the gold master, ship that off, shows up in stores, you're done, right? Maybe there's some expansions, maybe some bug fixes come out, patches, whatever, but basically the game is the game. And more modernly, what happens is, like, when a game is launched, that's just the beginning of the story now, where you're expected to maintain and add content, and the game brings on a life, to the point now where a lot of designers I work with talk about... Uh, this notion of kind of doesn't matter how you designed the game to be played. Once it's live, what matters is how the players are playing the game. And it's fascinating to see stuff like that, where the players just kind of take the reins and be like, well, this is what they like. So we as a company, as we maintain and add content to the game, should focus on what they like and not necessarily what we thought they were going to like beforehand. Now, I will say, I feel like that's, boy, I feel those uh, those gold disc moments a lot. So when, certainly when I was in computer games, we were locked into that, specifically around Thanksgiving, right? So we were always doing a, a mad rush uh, to get that gold disc out at Thanksgiving because that gave you enough time to uh, get it uh, manufactured basically over that weekend and then ship to stores in December for Christmas. Um, now, I got to admit, I remember this same kind of debate threads of the same kind of debate even then about, uh, let, let's say you get into testing. The designers design the game one way, the testers start playing it a different way. What direction you, do you go in at that point? Does the designer come in and go, well, clearly I need to fix the game mechanics in order to force the players to play the way that I expected? Um, or do you uh, uh, existentially release that desire um, as the author and let the players take it over. Uh, I think certainly, you know, where you are in the, the industry where you are now, Paul, you get a much more of a chance to do A-B testing and, uh, you know, respond in a much tighter feedback loop than we did at one point. Uh, and you know what? I will say that I'm, I'm not untroubled by that. I'm actually a little bit troubled about the, the possible loss of the auteur designer you know, designing a particular artisanal experience um, and throwing it entirely to commercial ends. I suppose you and I could debate about that for a, for another <laughs> hour, Paul. Well, well, let me let me uh, let me I, actually I, take that. I, and let, let me 
let me take that nugget and actually spin this in a different direction back towards our original topic here, because I want to introduce another product yeah, yeah. that uh, I think is important for us to talk about, uh, which is the Mythic Game Master Emulator. I've got a copy of it here. Uh, there's, oh. there's it on screen. Uh, I don't know if you've ever gotten to read this or play with this, Dan, but the idea here is um, is that this is not a game. This is not a game in and of itself. You're supposed to play this with another role-playing game, your role-playing game of choice, whatever RPG you want. Oh. And the idea is that it is meant to be used by the GM, so there is still a GM, but used by the GM such that they can do zero prep. Right? This game is going to supply the creative impetus to create content on the fly and answer a lot of questions and and take just like offload a whole lot of that creative work into uh, just randomness and an open-ended improv. There you go. And 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 eventually, like I mean, the way it's worded here, game master emulator, right, is the idea of like diminish that DM role possibly to the point of eliminating totally. And I I don't know if it's in here in this book or not, but that's exactly how I used it. Uh, I played it with a group of friends where we said, we're going to try and push this to the extreme and simply not have a DM at all. We're going to have this book. We're going to ask questions. We're going to collaboratively, as a group, make stuff up where necessary and and eliminate the GM entirely. How well did that work? Eh, okay, I guess. Um, I mean, it worked. We played a game. It, it's, um, I think... You know, it, it pushes, it basically feels like to me like a way to bridge the gap between um, standard, like traditional role-playing games like D&D or whatever that are designed to be run by a, by a dungeon master into the realm of story games that are designed to be GMless, right? And it's okay. just trying to like shoehorn one into the other. And frankly, you could, you could say that like ultimately it exceeds as best as it was possibly set up to succeed in that it gets to the point as you do with, say, a GMless game. I mean, let's talk about that, Dan. Like, how does does Fiasco solve the problem? Okay, so yeah. name some other. It's like this. We we talk about Fiasco a lot. I'm glad you're bringing it up because we just happen to have someone that might be able to answer some questions about that coming on next week. But we'll talk about that later. Um, uh, what other what other GMless games come to mind when we start talking about that, other than the Fiasco? Oh, excellent question. Um, let me think about that. Uh, so I, I, I've enjoyed quite a lot a game called The Fall of Magic, which is also a very story-driven game uh, with no GM. Um, I mean, certainly, I mean, you could argue that those old solo D&D, or, or, or not, maybe not solo, well, I guess... Uh, I'm trying to come up with other story I mean, games that but, specifically fall in this niche, and I'm struggling. I'm sure they exist. Fate? No. Blades in the Dark. Okay. Those are those are both tended, I believe, to be run. I mean, they may be they may be zero prep. They may be diminishing that DM role, but I think they still expect a DM right. to be present. Whereas Fiasco certainly goes to the direction of there just isn't one. There is none. Okay, so uh, maybe Fiasco and the Fiasco system is the the, the, the the peak example of that. Uh, and obviously, we've had a lot of fun uh, playing Fiasco a couple times on the channel, including yeah. this past July 4th. And so it's great. I With a GM-less game, and frankly, this is something that's true for all these DM-free uh, type games, um, including, you know, all the way to 
dungeon and choose your adventure and stuff like that is I can't get over the fact that there isn't really any secret space that we're exploring. So part of, for me, part of the you know tantalizing draw to Dungeons and Dragons for me is that the DM has, you know, maybe customized or not, but there is a space that we're actually exploring that has legitimate secrets that we might find or we might miss. And we might find clues that lead to other clues that are actually established there. And admittedly, when I play Fiasco, I know in my heart that we're all making it up on the fly and we're not actually discovering secrets that were laid down earlier. So, mm. um, you know, and I'm not sure if people run Fiascos as campaigns, right? That seems kind of hard, to, but for that same reason, I, I find it hard to think about like a fiasco campaign where you're exploring a setting and uncovering secrets and mythology and for me that's a lot that might that uh dan that might be because of the nature of fiasco where fiasco is intentionally about the downfall of your characters um but i would encourage us to sit down and play fall of magic at some point which uh every time i played fall of magic usually i'm playing a very stripped down focused part where we're just playing really like a piece of it because that game is definitely intended there's no way you're playing an entirety of Fall of Magic outside of a campaign length thing. It is a big, long running game. Um, and it is about exploration of a world. And, but um, it has a map, right? One of the interesting things about, about Fall of Magic is it has a map that you are trying to get across. And uh, so there's definitely it's introducing elements in that way, but in the same way as, say, suppose Fiasco does with, say, location cards. So it's introducing stuff, but I don't know how secret is it. I think I think you're still right that like ultimately, yeah. when you play Fall of Magic, you're going to have that experience of feeling like, well, we're all making it up as we go. So there was no prescribed secrets that we are uncovering. Yeah. Let's yeah. let's compare this to yeah, another I, game I, that you and I played recently. Yeah. Uh, what about uh, Return to Dark Tower? That's got secrets in it, and no GM. Yeah, you're right. Um, that that's actually that's an interesting case to think about. Actually, um, now you and I know that they were that you know again they're pre-programmed like an MMO, and there's yeah. thousands of other people who are all having the same experience. Um, that's that's an interesting, and, and I think we know played enough that we know what the dimension of the secrets is going to be. Right? We know that there's going to be. Uh, three dungeons and a boss, and the boss affects the terrain in a particular way, and we about, we pretty much know what the depth is going in. Whereas I think with so, with form RPGs, you don't know how deep the mystery is going to go. It's so fascinating, Dan, because what a, what a weird push pull I think we're discovering here of the nature of like we want there to be pre created content that is secret that we must discover. But we also want space in that content for things that nobody anticipated and thus must be invented on the fly. Yeah. Yeah. And you gotta have both, right? You gotta have, and I feel like a lot of these games pick one or the other. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's the magic elusive shift right there. I think that I think the magic mm -hmm. is the the mix between the, the predefined secrets and the improvisation of the table. And when for me, you know, for me, I always say that D&D is like the everything game for me. It's mm -hmm. strategy and it's people and it's voices and it's acting and it's teamwork and it's dice and it's probability and it's strategy and it's, it's, it's voices and history and everything. Um, and I find that when you, when someone says, well, 
role playing is really just improv, or uh, you know, role playing is really just literature. Um, that the, it's the mix that that, that uh, it's it's the magic sauce that's lost for me when mm. you when you lose that frothy crest of exactly where they where the two meet. Interesting, fascinating. Um, let me let me uh, I want I want to jump here. I'm going to give an example uh, of a game I played recently and, and bring this in. So uh, a few nights ago, um, uh, Tanya and I was. Uh, Tanya joined us uh, in our in our um, fiasco game that we played back in July. Uh, sat down to play a game called uh, Tales of the Arabian Nights, um, which you may or may not know is a very classic uh, uh, Ameritrash board game um, set in sort of Arabian themed Thousand and One Nights kind of setting, and uh, has it's just very story rich. Right, it comes with a big, thick, thick book of entries of things kind of you know like barbarian print but imagine you had a full eight and a half eleven size book that's a good two inches thick of stuff to include in the game and it has as you're moving around you're making choices and rolling dice on tables and so it tries to add this richness of content by having a lot of random table looks and and, and matrices that you're looking at so there's during the course of play there's a lot of I move to the space, draw a card. Okay, it looks up this number on this table. Roll a die, look on the table. Okay, that gives me a list of options. Make a choice. That goes to another table. Roll another die. Right. So there's all of this cross-referencing and 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 crunchy, painful, you know, spreadsheety feel to it before you finally get to the meat of okay. And here's the piece of story you get. And the piece of story is the fun part, right? Like that's the okay. I can tell you in that game that that Tanya's character. Uh, was a, a lost at sea and sorcelled by a magician and turned into an ape, which was just delightful, <laughs> just absolutely delightful to tell this ridiculous story of her character, uh, what 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 she went through. Um, and what I discovered as we were playing this game was originally written in '85, I think, and um, and on my printing is from mid 2000s. Uh, so the first thing I did is I looked up and I said, like, surely someone has made an app to make this easier. And, and yes, it exists. There is an app that does all of that initial painful stuff of, you know, codifying the, the dice rolling and choice making and cross referencing. So you just like tap a few buttons on the phone. I make this choice. I did this thing. Boom. Go read this paragraph. Which is really nice. Okay, that brings me to my to my what I'm trying to add in here, which is the role of computers in all this. Right? Can our computers like, I feel like computers are taking a lot of the pain away from some of these methods um, of adding the elements that we want, of adding breadth of content so it doesn't feel like it's all just pre-written because there's just so much and things are bouncing off of each other, as well as, you know, pre-made hidden content. When we, I start to look at things like the development of smarter and smarter AIs, are we going to get to that point where the computer can dim greatly diminish the role of the DM? Maybe even remove it. Will AI get us there? Well, I know that at least there's some, I think in the wandering DMs uh, viewership, like on Discord and other places, I think we've seen debate on this very issue. I think there's a couple of our viewers that would say absolutely yes, and I'm looking forward to it. And I think there's some other folks uh, that, are, that are a lot more skeptical about that. Um, boy, that's a big, that's a, that's a big question. 
I, my, my gut says probably not, right? My gut says probably not, but I'm from a particular time and place that maybe I maybe I'm biased about that. What do you think, Paul? I think there's there's this lovely quote someone brought up. I was I was having this conversation with a friend of the show, Adam Flynn, recently, and um, he brought up a quote from Bill Gates, which I'm not going to remember precisely, but it was something along the lines of how computers are the bicycles of thought. That like if you think of how bicycles changed the way we're able to move around the world, you know, just, right? They didn't, they didn't, they, they greatly changed what people can accomplish by making them able to move from place to place. Didn't, um, you still need the people, right? You still need the person, right? They, they just accelerated the motion and how computers are accelerating thought, right? That, that the computer is still gonna be this tool I think that will make like like in my Tales of Arabian Nights game made the game much more approachable and easy to play, but you still needed our brains present to tie these random things together and find that delightful emergent story. And I think I can see, and I'm and I'm looking forward to this idea of playing a D and D game where maybe the DM doesn't have to do a bunch of prep and can sit there and engage with an app and be presented with delightful content. But then still use their brain to add that that elusive shift, that 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 spark of creativity that I think is actually required. I don't know that AI is going to complete that, completely close that circle. I think it's just going to make it faster and easier. That's my theory. You know, you're also making me think of um, William Gibson's uh, famous quote of "The future's already arrived; it's just not evenly distributed yet." Um, huh. And so I can also see a case. Right, where some of that, some of that artificial intelligence stuff might be enough for some people, right? And you know, there's, you know, there's the, the the recent example at Google of debate at Google about whether AI is sentient or not, right? And obviously, the person saying yes was in the distinct minority of that, and everybody else that was looking deeply at it was saying, well, obviously, absolutely not. We can see the rather obvious algorithm that's producing this output. So I could imagine, you know, maybe for some people. Uh, AI will achieve a point maybe pretty soon where like this is good enough and maybe for other people that know how it's put together that know the magic trick then we're re like you and I might be seeing behind the scenes a little bit more and go oh no no, no I can totally see just like one step away from Eliza in the 60s um, yeah so maybe yeah. maybe it'll be you know, maybe it'll be good enough for some people and then maybe there might be some connoisseurs that uh, it still isn't quite hitting the right spot for possibly. Hmm. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. You know, I gotta say. So, you know, one thing in this discussion is is there's a bunch of different things the DM does, right? So the dungeon master has all kinds of all kinds of stuff that they're doing. Um, and the first blur. I mean, I was reflecting the other day. The very first time I ever saw an ad for Dungeons and Dragons, the thing that caught my attention was the DM creates a world uh, and mm. adjudicates adventures uh, for the players as they go through various perils. So there's at least three things that pop out into my mind that the DM does: is they create the setting and the world and the conflicts and the challenges before the game. Um, you know, they adjudicate the game and the mechanics and the rules mid-game. And then they're also role-playing an entire world of people and voices and characters and interactions and all that kind of thing. And I can, you know, as, as a hobbyist, uh, you know, you're going you're gonna to 
be a DIY person, you're going to do all those things. And so certainly over the years, you can see these instances where people tried to slice, right, slice silos of that job into separate things. First of all, prepared adventures, right? So the, the adventure creation was done by somebody else and you're just going to run it. Honestly, I, honestly, I get a lot of traction out of that. Frankly, if I was for, you know, Sunday confession time, I think of the three, I'm probably weakest at scenario design. And I usually feel pretty jazzed about actually running an adventure and running uh, the, the, the role-playing sessions. So I think a lot of these different techniques of the removing the DM are really removing like one part of hmm. the DM's skill. And if, uh, you know, if uh, World of Warcraft comes along and it's running all the mechanics and the rules without flaw, but we need to bring in the voices and the character work, right? You've managed to shave off part of the DM's job. I'm not sure I would recommend, uh, you know, chopping the job up. That seems like a loss to me. But I think a lot of these, a lot of these attempts have been maybe solving one part of the DM's job without solving all of them. Do you mean you wouldn't recommend chopping it up and then distributing those pieces around the table? Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. yeah or yeah. or but, hiring three separate DMs to do the three separate jobs. <laughs> see, but I still I do think there's room there for uh, offloading parts of those jobs or even all of those jobs to uh, a computer that's that's what i want to see um and and i feel like i mean i don't know where you would fit this this piece in your in your kind of three main jobs of the dm because i feel i still feel like there's this major piece of reacting right of reacting to what's yeah, happening yeah. at the yeah. table yeah. reading reading this the people like like being aware of what the players are engaging in and being able to say well they're they're choosing these things this this is where the fun is let me double down on that, um, which I think is actually really important. I totally agree. And I think that my experience, you know, it, it went playing Pool of Radiance the last couple of weeks, Thursday nights. And, you know, it's an older game. I get it. But the experience is fragile, right? Is a lot, a lot of my play is actually just exploring the user interface, right? It's like, how do <laughs> I interact with the shopkeeper? And how do I get the clue? And where can I ID magic items? Like a, like a lot of the play is just exploring the interface. And it's fragile. If I had a human DM there, they would clearly get, ah, you're trying to ID a magic item and then hopefully sell it. Great. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you how to do that, right? And right, right. Um, the experience is very fragile. And my, you know, for what it's worth, the plot of my party has corkscrewed in really oddball ways just because I couldn't find out how to hire a person. I couldn't figure out how to ID a magic item at the right time um, and all such stuff as that. So having a human DM there, understanding what your desires are and massaging uh, the interface with the language that you're good with, um, that's kind of everything. Yeah, yeah, and and then and then the extreme of that in my head is the case where the players as a group collectively decide we want to do this thing that is totally out of the realm of the content you prepared. Whether that's running a pre-written module or just just throwing a monkey wrench at, you know, I'm thinking of things like uh, like our favorite story of of uh, Max running a game where you were accidentally given control of a tactical nuke, and we all decided it was a good idea to call it in. We're all like, yes, bring the nuclear weapon and destroy the town where all the content of the game that you prepared is. 
I think Max. Sorry, and, Max. Uh, yeah, yeah. And yet the game was wonderful, right? It was a great game. Yes, we had to take a little 10-minute break so Max could figure out what the heck to do next. Um, that's the best, in my opinion. That is the best. when it, A, when the DM is put in that position, and B, when the DM embraces it and says, yes, I love what's happening here. This is crazy and weird. How do I roll with it? And I will say, right, when I, and it's funny because this goes for my teaching as well, when I'm, when I'm, at, 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 you know, uh, you know, leading a group of people through a, a, a lesson or a role-playing experience, um, I have three times as many ideas in that hour than I would in a month of sitting home alone at my computer, right? Like all, mm-hmm. like I, I'm struggling for ideas. I'm struggling for ideas in the advanced prep time, and then all of a sudden the game starts, and, and you know, I'm confronted by all kinds of things that I never would have thought of, and you know, suggestions from players. I'm like, well, obviously that's the situation here, and I never would have thought of that, but obviously that's the uh, reasonable deduction of exactly what's going on here. Um, and, you know, a, as a human being engaged in the game, um, you know, that's that's peak uh, life experience for me. So I, I certainly want, wouldn't want my uh, DMing to be uh, stricken uh, from D&D because that's, that's where I'm kind of most alive, frankly. Amazing. D&D, where, where Dan is most alive. That's a, I, I think we have to end right there. Let's just, just uh, and, and fortunately, we are actually, in fact, just about out of time. So, um, awesome. Dan, any, any final thoughts on, on, on Death of the DM? Or is that just a perfect You know, I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed all these games, right? I, 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 like, I played a lot of Dungeon, and I, I love Barbarian Prince, and I, I love Choose Your Adventure books and Endless Quest and uh, computer games uh, like Pool of Radiance. Um, and I like all of these things, and they all get a, um, a slice of the pie out of the experience. And, you know, the best thing of all is to get a group of people together, run it with a human with some reasonable advanced prep, and then you get the whole, you get the whole pie. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think I agree with that. Like, again, as much as, as critical as we are being in this video, uh, in, the, in today's chat, about, um, about all these games that, attempt, that make the attempt, I, I love those games, and I go to them for making the attempt and pushing the, the you know, pushing the envelope on, on this stuff. Uh, I still feel like, I feel like it's a solvable problem. I, I feel like we can kill the DM. I don't know how. I don't know. I don't know if it's, if it's ever going to be successfully accomplished, but I admire the attempt. <laughs> That's my uh, synopsis there. We will keep trying um, as human beings. Yeah, trying. Exactly, exactly. Uh, viewers, if you have thoughts uh, or, or other examples of games that uh, do something interesting or unusual to uh, reduce or eliminate the role of DM, but still harness that the magic, the elusive shift, leave some comments for us here in the video. We would love to hear from you. Uh, maybe we'll follow this up with more thoughts as the conversation evolves. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, don't forget, if you're new to the show, you can follow us on a number of social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter and Twitch and um, uh, TikTok and GitHub and probably some other things. And we have the handle Wandering DMs on all those sites. So please look for us there and you'll get updates on future shows. Yes. 
please do look for us. Uh, and if you uh, prefer, you can listen to our show in audio-only podcast format. Uh, those podcasts are available on our website at wanderingdms.com. Also through various podcast carriers, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Pocket Cast. Uh, there are some extra ones in there. Um, so uh, if you are listening to our show right now on one of those sites, please take a moment to rate and review us on that site. That helps other users find us, and we really appreciate it. We really do. And, of course, huge thanks to the patrons of the Wandering DM Show. If you're in a position to uh, join them, please uh, go to patreon.com slash wanderingdms, and you'll see our number of different tiers, uh, discounts on merch, a bunch of other stuff that we plan on doing in the future, and in particular, access to our Discord server where we uh, have uh, continued chat in our uh, after every show on Sunday. Now, this Sunday, I'm not going to be able to, uh, to join in because uh, uh, we have hey, – come, come on camera. Uh, big, now, big thanks to uh, my uh, big thanks to my PA uh, Isabel here, uh, who's helped a lot with the show. Did you see me run? I think you're on. Did you see you run? No. no. <laughs> Sorry, it was really heroic. It's really hard. Amazing. But anyway, we got to run over to uh, uh, Isabel's premiere at the Black Star Film Festival here uh, in Philadelphia this Sunday. So, uh, but other Sundays, uh, both Paul and I are in the after chat on our Discord server. So today, Paul will be there running it. Am I right, Paul? I, I, I will indeed. I'll log on. I'm very curious to hear uh, further thoughts on this from our viewers, um, especially uh, if any of you have um, some some GMless games to share with me. I'm realizing as we as we got to that part of the topic, I was surprised at how few I could pull out of my memory. So. Uh, I want to. I want to hear from you guys. What other GMless uh, RPGs are out there? I want to check them out. So yeah, come on, come come join me. Let's chat and, after, right after this. I'll be there in a few minutes. Yeah, please do that. And um, uh, uh, think about other shows coming up on Wondering M's channel this week. Uh, yes, I will be back late Thursday night Eastern time for more uh, Pool of Radiance. And uh, you know, we talked about Fiasco once or twice today. That's obviously our chief uh, example of a GMless game. So fortunately, you know, next week uh, we do have someone who can probably answer some questions about that. Namely, Fiasco creator Jason Morningstar will be joining us next Sunday. Uh, talk about uh, Fiasco, his other games over at Bully Pulpit Games, including his most recent one. And I know that Paul and I are both really expect, uh, really excited to talk to Jason Morningstar next Sunday. So we hope that you'll join us then and uh, uh, get your live questions in. Absolutely. I'm very excited. Can't wait to yeah. talk to, uh, to Jason. Yeah, definitely, right? So, uh, yeah, so uh, don't forget, we, the Wandering Dams, we're live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, sometimes wandering around the globe. So we hope you'll join us next week for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then.